Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from the Complete Picture Book Submission System. You have one chance to make an impression with an agent or editor with your picture book submission. The Complete Picture Book Submissions System will help ensure yours stands out above the rest. Created by New York Times bestselling author Emma Walton Hamilton and 12 by 12 Picture Book Challenge founder Julie Headland. The Complete Picture Book Submission System provides an easy-to-follow, step-by-step, foolproof process for every aspect of crafting submissions. No more fear. No more guesswork. No more reinventing the wheel each time you submit a new manuscript. To get their seven-step submission checklist, visit picturebooksubmissions.com today. That's picturebooksubmissions.com. Is this my friend Matthew? According to Skype, it has been over a year since we have talked. Yes, it has. <laughs> Thankfully, that's not the case in real life. In real, I, and how <laughs> weird is that to say that we've actually seen each other between Skype calls? I never have that happen. <laughs> this is a dedication to the life and light of Charlene Willing McManus and the story she told the world. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 574. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Today I'm joined by Tracy Sorrell, partner author of Indian No More, a middle grade novel by the late Charlene Willing McManus. Charlene poured a lot of life and a lot of history we don't get taught in schools into the writing of her debut novel. The result is an unforgettable protagonist named Regina Petit, who has always been Umqua and has always lived with her family on the Grand Ronde Tribes Reservation. Following true events, the federal government enacts a law determining that it will no longer acknowledge the existence of the Umqua or several other tribes on this land. Regina's family moves to Los Angeles as part of the Federal Indian Relocation Program, and the family attempts to start life anew amid the backdrop of the civil rights era. I reference in our conversation an outstanding review of Indian No More on the blog Indigo's Bookshelf by a 13-year-old member of the Children of Glades group of Seminole and Makasuki teens, and I've linked that review in the show notes for this episode. Hearing how the author of this review processed this book 
profoundly affected the way I read it, and I loved reading this book. Please welcome my guest, Tracy Sorrell, partner author of Indian No More. Sio, I am Tracy Sorrell, Jalagi. Hi, they call me Tracy Sorrell, and I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, located within what is currently northeastern Oklahoma. My pronouns are she, her. I write fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. I'm the co-author of Indian No More, a historical fiction middle grade novel written by Charlene Willing McManus, an Umpqua woman enrolled in the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde Indian Community, located in what is now Northwest Oregon. And she was a dear friend of mine. Hmm. I, oh, Tracy. First off, I love that you lead with, they call me Tracy Sorrell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because... that's the difference between um, English and, and Cherokee, because, you know, when you introduce yourself in English, what do you say? My name My is... name is, I know. or I'm, you know, I'm, and then your name, right? But in Cherokee, what you're saying is, I am called by them, or they call me, yeah. so your name. And I, you know, I talked to school kids about this. I said, because, you know, are we naming ourselves? Right. You know, we, we can change our name when we get older, but as kid, you know, when we're born, like other people have chosen a name for us. And so the Cherokee language looks at that connection and relationship of who are these people around you and what do they call you? So I think it's a, a wonderful thing, you know, because I talk to kids all over the place and I always encourage them, especially if they are bilingual or trilingual to maintain that because it's important to see the world, you know, through many different lenses and language is an important way. And I wish that Cherokee was my first language. You know, it's my third language. Spanish is my second language after English. Um, And so I'm still learning Cherokee, but um, there's a lot about mindset and values and relationships that we learn through through language and we're impoverished if we don't know more than one I feel like that's so beautifully put and it 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 as a person hearing you say it for maybe the first time maybe the second time I've heard you say it um it feels it feels like language that is different from what I have heard which causes me to lean in which is which is exactly the effect I am sure uh, is happening when you're meeting children as well. And, and by drawing attention to how we use our words, how we engage with one another, um, is, is of course so beautiful and important. I I heard another thing in your introduction, which is what we're going to be centering on today. But I have to admit when we talk today about Indian no more, I deliberately, as you know, Tracy, because you've been on the show before, I deliberately go into this having read your book and loved your book and and knowing you and loving you, but I I deliberately kept knowing a lot of how the book was made other than maybe what's written on on the author's notes, um, because I, I know that that is also probably best expressed through love and speaking, speaking from your heart and speaking from... From that place of relationship you were in with Charlene. So, why don't we first talk about the story broadly, India No More? And then I would love to hear about how you became connected with it. So, would you mind sure. doing a, a sort of book talk for India No More? 
Sure. So um, what I share with students is that there's a lot of history that unfortunately we don't get taught in school. And uh, the history that pertains to Native nations and their citizens, especially after 1900, is virtually non-existent unless you're in like a Native operated school. The novel takes place in one of those time periods where there's a lot of really important stuff happening, but we don't know what's happened to Native people at that time. And so it's the 1950s, we're in the United States, and Congress has passed a resolution, President Eisenhower has signed it, which says that for over 100 tribes, they will no longer exist as tribes recognized by the federal government. It doesn't mean that these people aren't obviously still native, but for purposes of being treated as a separate government that the federal government will have relationships with, that is over. The land that the tribe has and that its citizens live on will no longer be considered theirs. So people will have to outright buy the land they live on or they will have to vacate. At the same time, the federal government has a program that is focused on relocating people from their tribal homelands to cities. It was a voluntary program called the Indian uh, Relocation Act that was passed, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs you know, implemented it. But for those for tribes that are terminated, clearly, do they have an option to be voluntarily relocated if you can't afford to you know, stay on your land. No, you're going to have to be um, participating in this program to get sent to a city from your tribal area. So this is what happens to my co-author Charlene and her family when she's very young and she's younger than the protagonist in the book. So the book follows um, Regina, who is an Umqua girl who grows up you know, within the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde Indian community in Northwest Oregon. And the story is informed by Charlene's childhood, but there are also other tribal citizens she interviewed, and it's kind of an amalgamation of their experiences. So it's a historical fiction. And um, I know from my own background that, like I say, this is not taught in schools, but it is such a wonderfully accessible way for children and I believe adults to understand what it is like to be um, terminated, you know, to have your identity said that it doesn't exist and then to be relocated from a community around people that all know you and you know them to an environment where, and her family was moved from Northwest Oregon to Los Angeles. And that's where we follow Regina and her family in the story although many people from Charlene's tribe went to Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, but her family moved to Los Angeles as does Regina's family. So her parents, sister and her grandmother, they all move, take a train ride down there. And then what that's like when you've suddenly been living around, you know, your aunts and uncles, your cousins, you know, all these, these folks that, you know, and you now are in this neighborhood where there are so many different people of different backgrounds who speak different languages and they relate to you as the Hollywood stereotype of what a native person is. 
And at that time, it's the Lone Ranger show, right? So they really are expecting you to interact with them that way, but also other Westerns. So, you know, of course, like, do you use TP? You know, do you live in a TP? And all these kinds of things. And so it's this really funny story. It's also fast-paced. It's heartbreaking. I mean, as soon as I read, started reading it, I fell in love with the voice and Regina, and I just could not stop reading it. And um, I mean, there's just, there's native humor in it. There's um, intergenerational, you know, relationships, there's story, there's language. Um, So many things that attract me, attract, I think, many Native people to stories, but it's it's very accessible, I think, to a lot of people. So it's a great mirror, but it's also a great window, you know, to quote Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop. I would agree, and I feel like not only is it accessible, as you said, but it also reads aloud really well, mm-hmm. something that many, many teachers could be reading aloud to their classes, and how because of perhaps the nature of history or because of the nature of our country's history with indigenous individuals, there are so many current ties that you can just see plainly in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we're given this lens. We're given Regina who is processing her family's circumstances and uh, their wealth in relation to other people's wealth in the context of, well, on the res, we all sort of, what I wore looked like what everyone else wore and what our house Mm -hmm. looked like like what everyone else's house looked like. Uh, And then we meet this family of uh, African-American kids and they are sort of, as you said, um, asking about these these Hollywood stereotypes and come on, make a mm-hmm. TV, make it. And, and Regina <laughs> struggling with there's that great quote of feeling like, well, I didn't want them to think that I wasn't Indian, right? And so I wanted to do something to prove that I was. Just that that complexity right. of of just this is this is so complex to to for a for anyone, but for a a, a ten or a twelve year old kid to be like, yeah. let me explain to you the nuance of 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 different indigenous peoples and how we didn't all do this we we didn't all do the thing that hollywood portrays but just i don't know that against um the civil rights era and the mm-hmm. uh the hate that was um being being that that these neighborhood kids were directly uh feeling the weight of in addition to um the the other family that was from cuba i thought mm-hmm. there is Charlene did such a beautiful job of just showing what if I put Regina in this situation where she's going to have to explore the same questions our readers are going to have, but in the mm-hmm. context of doing it with, with children her age right. and, and how to navigate that space. I felt, I felt that it was just exceptionally done. And it was so cool to read in that very little bit I was reading that, um, that Charlene had, uh, won the mentorship through We Need Diverse Books and that she was partnered with none other than Margarita Engel. 
I know. I know. I was like, you have won the lottery. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great way to put it. At the time, I think, at the time that she won it, Margarita, I believe, would have been the Young People's Poet Laureate. I think so. Yeah. Oh, my word. Can you believe it? No, I I just, I mean, when, when I heard that, I was like, oh, man, you have hit the lottery. Like, there is. There's so much you're going to get from, you know, someone who is such a master with with language and craft and just, I mean, an all around nurturing, loving soul. You know, you you just can't like help but, you know, polish your work and shine with with someone like that, you know, guiding you. So I was I was ecstatic for her. support for the children's book podcast comes from storyteller academy learn the art of storytelling and unlock your creative potential with a team of story coaches and published professionals helping you achieve your creative goals sign up today at storytelleracademy.com so i hear she got that that you at that point in her life knew Charlene. How long <laughs> does your connection or friendship with her go back? Um, to the spring of 2016, we met at Quayley's okay. uh, Color of Children's Literature Conference. There were seven Native authors there, and um, it was wonderful. I mean, when I first met her, she is the kind of person that lights up a room. And what's funny is there's a picture of all of us together and she has this bright yellow jacket and I want to say it's like a flowered top, but it's a, it's a brightly colored top underneath. And that is exactly, you know, how she was like, she's just got this a thousand volt, you know, smile. She is the most (laughs) cheerful person. She lights up any, um, place that she's in and she just exudes love and and happiness and she's funny as heck you know she just has a great sense of humor and um we hit it off right away and all of us went to to lunch together and we sat down and we visited you know on our break during the conference and we just stayed in touch after that had she been starting to write Indian No More at that point, 2016? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, definitely. Yeah. She had been working on it for quite a while. And um, when she told me what it was about, I said, oh, my goodness. I said, you have to get this book done. I said, it is critical of critical importance because I had, you know, in college studied uh, Native American studies. So I had been through the history courses and law and policy stuff and then later went on graduate school in that field and law school. And I knew the ramifications of that time period and how we still very much live with the effects of it today. And I thought, if you are writing anything that could bring this topic in this era to younger people and adults in a way that is accessible, like it has to get published. And, but I didn't, you know, read, um, anything she had at the time. And then, like I say, after that, she got the the mentorship with, with Margarita and she really was kind of doubling down on getting, um, 
it polished for publication and working to have it submitted and stuff. So yeah, I was, I was ecstatic as soon as I heard about it. The, um, the notion too, that this is, this is a book, not only that there was a need for this book to exist in the world, but also I just felt in its accessibility, I felt like I've never, I've never heard of a book like this. I've never read a book like this. I'm so grateful that she had worked on it for so many years and that she kept mm-hmm. going with it and that 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 this became a book that became a book. Mhm. When when did she I I know that she passed in 2018. At what point did she uh I guess sort of invite you in to help assure that this book would become published? Very, very um, shortly before she passed. So she had, you know, we met in 2016. She had, um, I'm trying to remember if she'd had a bout with cancer before that or if it was just after that. But then in late 2017, we had, you know, we had talked about, I had interviewed her for Cynthia Lydic Smith's Sensations blog Um, about having the internship or the mentorship with uh, Margarita and the book had been um, announced in Publishers Weekly that it was going to be published by two books. And so she was, like I say, now working on revisions. And so we were celebrating that. And I said, I can't wait to see you at Qualey in, you know, April in New York City. And then it was in late January, she emailed and she's like, you know, I don't know that I'll be at Qualey. I'm not feeling that great. Um, but, you know, hopefully I will. But I, I just don't know that I, I can't guarantee that I'll be there. And so I was sad to hear that. And then in uh, February, she had posted on Facebook that she was really not feeling well. And so I had said, you know, hey, how are things going? And, um, not realizing that the cancer had come back until we talked a little more, but she, you know, again, like ever full of positivity and light. And then, um, in March, she asked me if, um, she wasn't able to complete, uh, the revisions and get the story ready for publication would I do that? And she had the blessing of her publisher, Stacy Whitman at two books to ask me that. Mm. At that point, like the floor just went out from under me. I, I can't imagine. I can't, uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine the, 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 the weight of responsibility one might feel, um, for yeah, because I mean, project I'm... forward and 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 the weight of what she must have been going through, I just mm. yeah, I I'm at a loss for words. No, I was um, because I'm ever the optimist in these kind of situations, and I just think you know, we've got medicine, things will get better. You're you know, you're such a positive person. Like if anybody can stay on the positive side of something and see it through, like it would be her. And so I, um, she said, you know, I want to send you the, uh, manuscript and have you read through it. And, um, so 
you know, of course I'm thinking to myself, I have written nothing that is middle grade. Hmm. I don't have any clue, like, what to do here. So I um, emailed my agent and I said, you know, would you, uh, here's what's happening. Would you take a look at this and tell me if you think I can do this? So I didn't even read it because uh, I didn't want to, you know, say yes or no, or I have no clue. Um, And my agent said, got back to me and she said, you know, it, it definitely, you know, needs revision, but you can do this. And, um, so then knowing that and knowing that my, you know, my agent, Emily Mitchell's a former editor at Charles bridge. Um, I was like, okay, I, um, still took time, <laughs> prayed about it, thought about it. And, um, then I emailed Charlene and I said, okay, um, I, I can do this. And at that point I read it and I just fell in love, like I say, with Regina's voice and the story. And I was even more convinced that it needed to be out in the world. You know, um, what I didn't realize is that we weren't going to have even time to meet. So Mm. this is in March. Um, and like I say, she's, you know, still working on the revisions and stuff. So I'm kind of like this contingency plan if things don't work out, but I'm not feeling like that's really imminent. Um, and then by later in the month, it's clear that it is, um, imminent. And we got to have one call in April before she passed May 1st of 2018. So I had, um, thought we would at least, you know, get to have some time together, but, um, we had a, a good conversation and her voice was weak, but very strong the whole time she was talking about the book. And I I really thought that I was going to get out, be able to go out and see her. And then it was just a matter of a few days after that, that I got the call. So it's, um, it's still surreal when I think about it because I don't know too many people that write a book with someone and don't have them there to consult, you know, and, um, you know, we ended up getting the contract together. Um, and that's why we do the with, because I mean, she wrote the story and, you know, I took over, like I said, revising and added scenes and smooth things out where they need to be smoothed out. But um, her husband sent me a box with a thumb drive and pictures and mm-hmm. newspaper articles and other notes she had. And that's, that's what I had. Um, so I just would take time, you know, every time I worked on it to, like, Charlene, just, like, help me, you know, channel your voice Um and the thing that um, made me the most calm about the whole thing was much later when Margarita read it, she said, I can't tell where you, she says, I read, you know, the earlier version, so I know what's her work, I know what's yours. She said, but as I read it, I don't see any difference between the two. Oh. And that was everything. 
you know, because I mean, I love Margarita's work. She's, you know, fabulous. And so the fact that it wasn't discernible to her, what was, you know, what Charlene had written and what I had added, you know, um, meant a lot to me because this is her part of her legacy, you know, and I wanted to ensure that I had, you know, done anything obviously to screw it up. <clears throat> to serve it forward in that way is beautiful. Yeah. And I, I know, I know that so much of, of her life is tied into this book because there's these wonderful photos in the back and there's this wonderful, mm-hmm. um, long note, author's note. And to see the most moving photo to me, they're probably all most moving, but the one where you see Charlene with these friends and, and, and mm-hmm. there they are. There's like, well, those are the kids that Regina meets. There's Keith and there's Addie. And just it, mm-hmm. to know that she, that in carrying this story forward, you so much were, were literally carrying Charlene's story forward. Uh, is is beautiful. I um. Yeah, it's exceptional work. I think the book is exceptional and beautiful, and I can't imagine again that that the weight, the the desire to get it right and to honor her legacy in how your words and your additions and edits took residence in this story. Um. I, I respect that so much and the end product it, it's just it's beautiful I think that I I probably can't nearly say it with um, I think the most beautiful review that I read of the book which I'm I'm positive you've read this but if you don't mind um, I want to reference the review that was published in I think July on Indigo's Bookshelf did you have a mm. chance to read on mm. Indigo's Bookshelf Voices mm-hmm. of Native Youth that mm-hmm. that there's this long and beautiful review of the story that um, that is for those that aren't aware. This is if you this is like the absolute greatest Twitter handle to follow. It's at of glades o f g l a d e s, and it's um, native youth in Florida, and um, they have this wonderful blog and. Um, named for for their late friend Indigo, who was also a, a, a contributor and founder of the blog. Uh, and they wrote of this story, this book shows that stereotypes exist between marginalized groups, but the worst slurs and threats of violence come from white culture and BIPOC come together in time of crisis. It shows how white teachers and schools harm BIPOC uh, black, indigenous, people of color, children, and most sadly, how native people like Regina's daddy can do terrible things to themselves and people they love because they are trying to forget that they are native. There's, there's some. I'll have to link to this review in the post because for me, to have completed reading India No More and then go and read a a commentary on it from children, young people that were seeing themselves reflected in the story and in the review, uh, communicate those reflections often. 
um, found that to be very touching too in speaking to the legacy, as you were saying, uh, of, of carrying Charlene's legacy forward. And, and those are the reviews that mean the most. I mean, here are young people who are living, you know, that was written, of course, in, 20, in 2019, you know, last year. This is, you know, representing 1954, you know, and then we move ahead to 1957 into 1958. <clears throat> and yet they can see themselves in this book. And because the things are still happening, you know, there's yeah. things that they can still relate to. And those are the reviews that mean the most to me because they get it. So many times, you know, when I get reviews of my books and they're wonderful reviews, but I know that the people writing them have no clue about what they're reading in a lived experience way. You know, they, they may be able to talk about the craft, but you know, these kids are, are living this experience and, um, that's, that's what means a lot when you have native kids, uh, native teachers, native librarians who recognize themselves or recognize their community or talk about, yes, you know, I have experienced this too. Those are, are the things where I say, okay, you know what? This is absolutely right that we got this out into the world because where else are you going to find that in a book? And it's not that we can't relate to other people's experiences, but ours are unique. You know, we are legally separate citizens from, you know, we have a dual citizenship automatically. You know, as soon as we're born, we're citizens of our native nations and we're citizens of the United States second and because our native nations existed prior to the United States, that's not an experience that many people have and can relate to. Um, so I'm grateful for those young people who write on that blog. I know it's a lot of work and I am just excited, you know, that they have literature where they can see themselves and they can examine things critically and, and let people know where, things are falling short. I think that's fabulous. I would have loved to have done something like that at their age, you know, mm. but it just didn't exist then. I think about just, yeah, no, I was gonna say, I think about it in the common, in the, um, in the, in the current context and how it relates to this book. Also something that I didn't want to leave without bringing up that dad, Regina's dad in the story, um, we see him grapple with this distrust of the government. I mean, having having your tribe and many, many tribes throughout Oregon be told, uh, you no longer exist, you're no longer being recognized, um, that Charlene in the beginning likens it to the walking dead. Mm-hmm. Um, that we don't exist. That, that That is not an experience that um, many individuals can can claim connection to but it's one I think that we all can understand and can mm -hmm. understand very clearly um, and how we make, how our actions can make other people invisible or, um, or demeaned or, or um, how we can withhold dignity from others and how we choose to carry our lives. Uh, it was just something that 
this is like for podcast two, three, and four of this of this conversation. <laughs> I know that I hear myself getting myself into like, oh, this is another big conversation. Um, but but more, I think I just wanted to nod to uh, really, I guess how how the beauty and weight I felt in this book was one that that could be studied, could be referred to, could be um, explored throughout the entire course of a year in school, mm-hmm. uh, that this could be a book that could stay with a classroom um, and have a conversation going all year long and beyond that. That That is something wholly unto itself. I have never experienced a book where I felt so clearly like there is so much here. Yeah. Um, and so all praise to Charlene's storytelling and her speaking her truth and how she crafted it onto the bones of this story and Regina's ex- Regina's story um, and how you were able to carry that forward. You both did uh, an exceptional job. And I hope that this is a book that continues and continues to reach readers. Thank you so much, Tracy, for coming on to share it with me. Waddell, thank you, Matthew, for having me. I appreciate it. Is there anything about this story that you want to make sure folks know about before I ask you that final question? There's so much to talk about, I know, and I cut co- I myself off, but <laughs> I want to make sure that if there was something you wanted to make sure folks heard, that, that, that you have that chance to say it. Even if we don't talk about things in our classrooms and they're not present in our textbooks, um, this is a perfect example of why it's critical that teachers, librarians, parents, community members look at what is being published by Native authors um, in the the trade market because you're not going to get this stuff elsewhere. You are not going to hear about this. You know, I I wish I could say that we're going to make inroads with textbooks soon, that we're going to have um, people who put this at the forefront of their curriculum. Some states are doing that. Mm. Um, Oregon, where Charlene was born and lived for a while as a child, um, has mandated that there will be Native um, related curriculum and history taught in the schools in fourth and eighth grade. That's not really widespread. Um, there's just a few other states that do that. So, you know, your trade books are, are those places where that's going to happen. And I would urge you to look at, you know, the American Indian Library Association's Youth <clears throat> Literature Awards, as well as what's coming out from others, just to see, you know, what you can bring into your classroom and help. Native children see themselves, you know, over 70% of us live outside of our tribal lands. So it's very likely that you've got Native children in your school. And um, at the same time, you know, kids grow up, they run businesses, they become elected officials, etc. And they make decisions that impact Native people. And so you need to know about the fact that there aren't just the federal government and the state government to interact with or know about. There are also tribal governments. I have a lot of people that when in a previous life, when I did advocacy work in DC that had no clue 
about any of that. And they governed accordingly. Mm. I, 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 I'm thankful for that reminder and for, for looking for books like this and voices like this. And I'm grateful to see publishing opening up a little bit more thanks to the, the work of folks like you and Cynthia. Um, I know that there's, there, there's promise ahead and that mm-hmm. also we librarians, teachers, parents, we all can help publishing along and help authors and illustrators along by seeking out these books, by buying these mm-hmm. books, by communicating that way with our dollars that we value these stories, not just by, you know, not it's great to post them on Facebook, <laughs> great to podcast about <laughs> them. All these things are great, but to actually, when it comes down to it, help communicate through sales as well, um, through suggesting to state book awards, things like that. So thanks for that reminder. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to make sure that we end uh, thinking of our students, of our children, as as I think is the best way for us to end. So I'll ask you, Tracy, that I'll see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message that I can bring to them from you? Uh, that I am excited that they are reading and learning. I hope they are enjoying what they're reading in their classrooms. And um, if they haven't been reading any books in their classrooms or seeing them on their shelves in the classroom or in their libraries about Native people um, in contemporary life, ask to have those books added because we are still here and it's important that they see us and know about us and um, I guarantee you some of those adults may be surprised as to who's in their student body. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by me, Matthew Winner, in my library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 550 episodes at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and do not reflect the ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app 
and let's make bedtime a dream. That's KOKO Sleep and I'll see you there.